Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4 today. 1 John chapter 4, we continue our study on authentic living. Today we're looking at love again. We saw authentic love last time. Today we're going to look at the foundation for authentic love. When you look at a foundation of a building, uh, as the building's being built, it's amazing how many months are spent on a giant skyscraper digging a hole and getting the foundation established so that it can support the weight of that building. We're going to look at the, the reality that the love that God calls us to have has its foundation in God himself, and that's what we want to talk about today. Three times in this passage, uh, John mentions loving one another, and then he gives us three facts that support that uh, encouragement. Verse 7 in chapter 4, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given assurance to us from his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son as the world's savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. Let me remind you that as we've gone through 1 John, John speaks in absolutes. When he says someone who loves or someone who does not love, he's saying someone who loves as a lifestyle, it is the habit of their life. Or someone who doesn't love, that's the habit of their life. So he's saying if you don't love, if it is not the consistent habit of your life to love others, it's an indication that you don't know God. Well, I want us to look at these uh, foundational facts that John shares in this passage about God. First of all, we look at what God is. John tells us, number one, what God is. God is love. He says it clearly. Verse 8. Because God is love. He mentions it again down in verse 16. God is love. It is God's statement of his nature. John is telling us this is who God is. He is love. Like a navigator relies on a compass to give you direction. John is letting us know that the direction, the source is God himself. A a compass relies on the the nature of the earth, the, the, the gravitational pull and the magnetic fields of the earth to be able to direct that comes to tell us which way to go. That's the nature of, of the way our earth was created. 
And I think John is saying here, the nature of who God is and he is love is what steers us. It's what guides us. It's what points in the direction that we're to go as followers of Christ. Notice he doesn't say love is God. He says God is love. Our world thinks if they can experience real love, they've, they've experienced heaven. You hear some people say that. Oh, I've fallen in love and, and I'm experiencing heaven on earth. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about this, this, this God-centered love that is unconditional, that's given and demonstrated to us. By the way, when you think about the world and their understanding of love, what much of what the world calls love isn't love anyway. Forget the fact that we're talking about a love that comes from God. A lot of what the world talks about as, as love is just infatuation. If a person can fall in and out of love as fast as people fall in and out of love, it's not love, folks. A lot of other stuff going on that love shouldn't be what we call it. Someone said, love does not define God, but God defines love. And that's what John is trying to say here. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 5. This is just this great verse about, about God's love for us. If I can find Romans, I know it's there. Listen to verse 5 of chapter 5. This hope will not disappoint us. Paul is writing about hope. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. God's love has been poured out into our hearts. God is saying, I'm going to show you what real, genuine, authentic love is. In verse 7, he says, "Because he says, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. That knows God is to be intimately acquainted with God, not to just know about him, not just to have an intellectual knowledge, but to have a relationship with him. That's how you know you've experienced real, genuine love. See, God has shared himself with us, and we'll talk about that demonstration in a minute. And when we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we, we, we become loving like he is. His nature of love becomes a part of us. It changes us. I read this week about a, a thief who broke into a hospital and stole a bunch of stuff, and, and the hospital administrator taking inventory realized what had been taken, and, and the administrator called the police and said, please put the word out to whoever the thief is that what they took was radioactive material, and they're walking around carrying death, and it's going to change them because they can't hide it, they can't get away from it. I thought, that, that's the picture. It's the positive side of this, but look at that analogy. Those of you who've trusted Christ as Savior, you're walking around with the presence of God in your life. And you're not walking with death, you're walking in life, and it will transform your life. Since God is love, and we have claimed this personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the necessity is that we reveal that love to others in how we live. So let's look, number two, at what God did. He did exactly that. What God did, he sent his son. See, verse, or number one, verse seven and eight is the foundation, and now in verse nine through 11, we look at this demonstration. Look at verse nine. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. God's love was revealed in this way. This word revealed means to be made known, means to make public. God went public with his love. He sent his one and only son. By the way, some translations say his only begotten. Uh, There was a big deal that was made, has been made about the newer translations that use the phrase one and only. Uh, I like the one and only. The Holman translation actually capitalizes the whole thing, the one and only son. 
It just means the unique, one of a kind, one and only Son of God. There's none other like Him. I think that expresses better to me than only begotten does. His one and only Son. All that God does expresses all that God is. God loves And it's expressed in action. It's not inactive. It's not static. We've looked at this verse before in Romans 5 8 that that God demonstrates or God proves his own love in in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, we read those verses God proved his love, Christ died for us. We read John 3 16, God so loved the world that he sent us, gave his only begotten Son. And we, we just read those and say, Yeah, we know that happened. But John is trying to get us to just zero in on this truth that, that God loved us. In such a way that he demonstrated his love to us by sending his son. Folks, it's not just the incarnation that John is reminding us of. I believe he's reminding us of the cross. We just sang about it, God's mercy. The cross is what John is referring to. When he sent his one and only son. See, Jesus didn't die as a martyr. Jesus didn't, uh, it wasn't plan B. That was God's design to come in the person of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh so that he could give his life on a cross for us. He made it public. He revealed his love. In chapter 3, we looked at a couple of, of byproducts or, or uh, results of the crucifixion. And we, and we saw, as John said, Jesus came to take away our sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Here John is saying he came to give his life for us, his one and only son. Not an accident, someone said, but an appointment. So that he could die on the cross to pay the price and the penalty for our sins. John lists a couple of purposes in this passage for the death of Christ on the cross. Look at verse 9. Again, God's love was revealed, made known, made public, shown, demonstrated among us in this way that God sent. Someone used to remind me all the time that, that Jesus was the first missionary. The father said, who will go? And, and the son said, I will go. I like that. He sent his one and only son into the world. This is it. Here's the reason. So that we might live through him. One of the reasons for the death of Christ is to give life. Folks, unbelievers are desperately in need of life. Can you remember what it was like to be lost? To be an unbeliever? We saw a while back that somebody encouraged us not to use the word lost, but to to use the word the people that Jesus misses most. (laughs) Can you remember what it was like to be missed? The darkness, the despair, the death. Do you know that you need to be reminded, and I'm, I'm glad that I go to passages like this that remind me that before I met Christ, I was in death. I was living apart from God, spiritually separated from him. It's death. You say, Pastor, that's pretty strong words. Well, you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Don't forget what it was like to be without Christ. Dead. You're, you're trying to share Christ with somebody. You're encouraging somebody to come to church. You're trying to explain what Jesus, the difference Jesus has made in your life. And you kind of struggle with you wish the people would understand that. Just need to understand they're dead spiritually. That they need life through Christ. And you have the answer. It's it's as much as a a person who knows CPR who can go rush to the aid of someone who's having trouble breathing. 
they're about to breathe their last breath and we, we can say, well, I've got the, the skills and talents with CPR. I can help that person live. Folks, we have something bigger and greater than that. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ and we can share life with people. He came so that we might live through him. What an incredible opportunity to share life with someone. But look at that paradox. He died so that we could live. He died so that we could live. John says Jesus came and demonstrated his love so that you could have life. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me, verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin. Who's that talking about? Jesus. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He, the Father, made the one, the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now that doesn't mean Jesus became a sinner. The Bible's clear. He, he was without sin. Look at the book of Hebrews. It's very clear. It's very clear here. He who knew no sin. What it means is our sin was placed on him. He who knew nothing about nothing, had nothing to do with sin, took on sin. It's the doctrine of imputation, to, to impute something. It's just a, it's a banking term that means to credit to someone's account. I go to the bank and I try to make a deposit and the, the, the teller takes that money and credits it to my account. Look at this verse in 2 Corinthians again. He made him the one who knew no sin, did not know sin, to be sin. In other words, here's what God did. God took my sin, he took your sin, and he credited it to Jesus. He said, here, I put that on the Savior. If that isn't enough to just blow your mind, look at the rest, part of, the rest of verse 21. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not only did God take my sin, your sin, and place it on Christ at the cross, but he took the righteousness of Christ and he placed that on me. Wow. Not only did God say, I'll take your sin, but he said, I'll make you holy. I can't wrap my brain around that, but I'm thankful for it. He's credited to my account righteousness. See, this is the cross. Back to 1 John chapter 4. Let me just say it this way. If, if, if God loved me this way, John is saying, then you should love others. He, he says in, in verse um, 10 that he sent his son not only that we might live, but that we, he would be the propitiation for our sins. That's to satisfy the demands of a holy God that, and we looked at this in chapter 2, that what God said was you're guilty, 
And my, my word requires that you be holy, but since you can't be holy, I'm going to pronounce judgment that you're a sinner. Yet as the judge, he came and took the price and paid the penalty. That's what propitiation is. God satisfied his own demands for holiness by taking my sin upon Christ on the cross. So since he loved me in this way, John says, you should love others. Someone said it's not obligation that I love others, but appreciation. Don't miss this, folks. God, Paul, John isn't just saying, the Holy Spirit isn't just saying through John, since God loved you, love others, and you're obligated to do it. He's saying since God loved you this way, you need to grasp the reality of the love of God poured out on your heart so that you love others, not because he says you're supposed to do that, because you're just in awe. It's just your gratitude and appreciation for what he's done for you. Next time you struggle with caring for another person, loving another person, forgiving another person, remember what Jesus did for you. And that's not to give you a a, a guilt trip. You better be like Jesus, that kind of thing. That's just to say step back and grab hold of the reality that you've been forgiven. And the love of God has been demonstrated to you at the cross. See, John is saying the deeper we go into the meaning of the cross, the greater our love for Christ will be. You get that? The greater you try to grasp what the choir and the worship team led us in about God's grace and God's mercy, the more you delve into the reality of that, the more you're going to be motivated, not just obligated, but motivated to share, to understand his love and then to share it with others. The Lord's Supper is a perfect, perfect statement of that. We sang about the bread and the cup a little while ago. God, God says, I'm going to give you an observance that whenever you do it, you do this in remembrance of me. You know what he's saying? Don't just remember that I came. Remember that I died and rose again. The Lord's Supper is to bring the people of God together. Some people call it communion. It's to bring people, the, the people of God together and think about the shed blood and the broken body, to, to think about the sacrifice of Christ, to be immersed in the reality of his love so that you're motivated to now share that with others. That's what John is saying. So what, who is God? He is love. What did he do? He sent his one and only son to die in your place. Let me tell you, folks, if you have not received Christ as personal Savior, he is waiting for you to acknowledge that he did that for you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Number three, what is God doing? Right now, he abides in us. Look at verse 12. From verse 12 through 16, six times, John uses the word remain or abide. I like abide. The newer translations use remain. To abide is to be at home in, to be settled there. When I go home from all the activity of the day and all the stuff that goes on in my life even though some people think I just work one hour a week on Sunday morning when I go home at the end of a day I want to settle in to a chair that's my chair and prop my feet up and be at home and I, I just think everything else that's going on around me I, I'm at home my wife's there it's good I'm at home Sometimes she'll say, Kevin, tell me something good that happened today. 
And sometimes I'll say, I got to come home to you. At home. That's what abide means, at home. So six times in this section here, 12 through 16, he mentions that, how important that is. Look at verse 13. This is how we know that we remain in him or abide in him and he in us. He has given assurance to us from his spirit. Someone said God said something to us in his word and he did something for us at the cross and now we get to read that he does something in us by abiding by his Holy Spirit. See, folks, we're not just simply reading a book about God or sitting in a, in a, in a stadium or in a, a room like this where we get to watch other people do it. We get to celebrate and participate in the very love of God. This, this eternal drama that God has un, unfolded for us. We get to be participants in it. John says, God sent his son and then he sent his Holy Spirit to live within you, to abide in you. Jesus didn't just go back to heaven at the ascension and say, have a good time. Hope it works out. I've told you guys what to do. Read the book. He said, I'm going to be with the Father, and I will send another comforter, another a paraclete, another one to come alongside you, to live within you, to confirm my presence in your life. And John says, that's the spirit. That's the assurance that we belong to him. I was just looking back at the where God dwelt in the pages of scripture and you look at the book of Genesis and he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve and talked with them and you go through the Old Testament and you find that that God walked with the people. Then in the book of Exodus when God raises up a people the children of Israel and and leads them out in the wilderness and they they build a a tabernacle and God rests there, meets with the people in the tabernacle. His, His presence, his glory is there. And then you read through the prophets how because of their disobedience the glory of God left the temple. But then you open the pages of the New Testament, and the Bible says in John chapter 1, John writing again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God, and you skip down to verse 14 in John chapter 1, and it says that, that, that the, the, the Word made his dwelling among us. The Word became flesh, took on flesh, took on humanity, and made his dwelling among us. That word means to be tabernacled among us. God God came in the person of Christ and he dwelled among us. And then it gets even better. He died on the cross for us. He rose again and he sent his spirit at Pentecost to live within us, to abide in us. What a blessing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, which is in you. He lives within us. Someone said God's love is proclaimed in the word, it's proven at the cross, and it's perfected in the believer. How does that perfection take place? It's that abiding. It's that relationship remaining in him. We won't spend time today, but verse 17 talks about that love being perfected in us. My understanding of the love of God has grown. I've known the Lord for almost 40 years now. I still cannot believe that. I used to hear people talk about walking with Christ for 25 years, and I thought, man, that's an eternity. Almost 40 years now that I've known the Lord, and I'm, I'm every day discovering more and more about his love and his grace and his mercy. You know why? Because I keep messing up. And he could say any day, Kevin, it's been 40 years. 
He hasn't got this yet, but he doesn't. I experience his love even more. That's what John is saying. This understanding of the depth of the love of the Father. We looked at a couple of weeks ago how deep the Father's love for us that we should be called his children. Every anniversary that I remember, when I remember to go buy a card for Kelly for our wedding anniversary, 33 years now, I've gone to a Hallmark or a Walmart or HEB or somewhere, drugstore, to find an anniversary card for her. And you know, when we first got married, we were newlyweds. It was pretty easy. Man, I was in love. I just pulled a card from the shelf and it said something about love. And man, that's it. I talk about love. And I give her a card and it's great. And, but as the years go by, I find myself going to the card section in the store and I, I pull out a card and I read it. And I go, yeah, that's good, but that doesn't say it. Put it back. And I go to another card and I read it and I go, no, that doesn't say it. It takes me a long time now to find a card that expresses my love for Kelly. Why? Because I'm great and I've gotten better? No. It's because my understanding of love has grown. And it's really hard to put it on a card. Here's what John says. When you walk with Christ, you understand this depth of his love. And as you continue to walk with him and abide with him and he and you and you and him, you, you understand even more of the depths of his love to where you can barely express it. But, John says, this is Kevin's paraphrase, I'll give you one good way to express it. Love one another. Some of you are having trouble loving other people because you haven't understood the depth of God's love for you. That's my prayer for us, that we would discover that every day. And it would just be the outflow of his love for us as we care for others, share with others, and love one another. Let's pray.